1: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In Class Struggle and the Color Line, American Socialism and the Race Question nineteen hundred to nineteen thirty, published by Haymarket Books in twenty eighteen, Paul Heidman collects for the first time sources source materials from a diverse array of socialist writers and organizers, providing a new perspective on the complex history of revolutionary debates about fighting anti black. Uh, racism in America. Paul Heidman holds a PhD in American Studies from Rutgers University Newark and is a frequent contributor to Jacobin Magazine. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Paul. Hey, thanks for having me. So to get started, could you please tell us about your background and what led you to write this book?
0: Sure. So I was doing a, a PhD in American Studies at Rutgers Newark, focused on um, Black intellectual history and uh, specifically on the reception of the Russian Revolution among Black activists, intellectuals, and artists um, in the time of the Harlem Renaissance, so basically immediately after the Russian Revolution of 1917. And in doing that, I uh, just came across this incredible uh, trove of sources of black intellectuals of of various stripes engaging with the revolution, thinking about it, um, changing their positions on various questions as a result of what the revolution seemed to be showing them. And um, in the course of that, I came to realize that a lot of the thinking about the American left's relationship to uh, the race question, as it was called in the United States, before the Great Depression was um, uh, uh, a little um, stilted, and I think didn't reflect the the dynamism, the political dynamism that was uh, occurring in those years. And so I wanted to put this collection together to give a fuller picture of the debates on the American left, the emergence of the black left before the Great Depression, um, and the, the kind of uh, some of the prehistory of the American Communist Party's uh, uh, development of its line on the race question, um, because there's a, there's a significant amount of scholarly literature at this point on the Communist Party, particularly during the Depression, during the 1940s, during the 1950s, the real high point. And I wanted to show that the, the foundation for that history, that the, that history didn't start with the Great Depression, but went back um, actually about a decade further.
1: Right. And so your anthology seeks to correct the record in a sense. uh, But what is the common perception of how American socialists before the 1930s dealt with the question of black oppression?
0: So, yeah, so there's a a quote from the socialist leader, Eugene Victor Debs, who was the socialist presidential candidate four times in the early 20th century, got over a million votes in 1912. Um, And Debs, in the course of one of his essays, said, quote, we have nothing special to offer the Negro. And that quote has kind of been used to stand in for the entirety of socialist thinking on the question of race prior to about 1930 Um, and uh, I wanted to show that one the the socialist position on race was actually really complex there was a very wide-ranging debate among party members on this question and uh, also the, the kind of other part of the standard story is that the the American left's thinking on the race question really changes in the late 1920s when the Communist International, which is the kind of federation of communist parties all over the world, um, issued what was called the Black Belt Thesis. And the Black Belt Thesis stated that black Americans in the southern United States constituted an independent nation with the right to self-determination in the same manner as like oppressed nationalities in Eastern Europe. For example, and of course, you know a lot of members of the Communist International were uh, Jews or Lithuanians or, or Czechs or you know uh, people from nations that have been denied self-determination, and they kind of imported that understanding to uh, understand the situation of Black Americans and of American racism. Um, and so that the kind of the the standard view is that up until the black belt thesis, the Communist Party and the American left generally just didn't really pay much attention to the question of race. And I wanted to show that that's actually really wrong, and it, it neglects the role of Black socialists and communists in the years before the late 1920s. Uh, in, in doing really innovative thinking about, uh, about how to combine the struggle against racism and the struggle for socialism and the way that that work actually influenced a number of white socialists and communists to change their understanding of, of the race question.
1: Right. And to to set the stage a little bit, um, if we could go back and talk a little bit about Karl Marx um, and his um, relationship to to these issues. So it is often claimed that Karl Marx um, um, uh, didn't deal with slavery and the question of race. Is is this correct? No, no,
0: it's it's fundamentally wrong. Uh, Marx mentioned slavery constantly in his work. the first chapter of the first volume of capital the famous chapter on the commodity is talking about commodities like gold and coffee and sugar uh all of which would have been produced with slave labor um he talks about slavery repeatedly in capital and in fact when the american civil war broke out marx dropped his research on capital his magnum opus to follow the course of the war to write about it um, he found John Brown's raid incredibly uh, inspiring and, and hoped it would give rise to slave revolts all over the South. Um, he and Engels followed the course of the war uh, really daily. They're writing letters back and forth and talking about the latest news, why the, why the Union needs to embrace the cause of abolition in order to win. Uh, Marx and, and Frederick Douglass, though they never spoke, uh, were aligned on this question uh, that, that abolition was the key to winning the war. And when uh, um, Lincoln is re elected in 1864, Marx drafts a letter to him on behalf of the International Workingmen's Association, also known as the, the First International that Marx was a part of. Uh, uh, and this letter is congratulating Lincoln on his re election and uh, saying, you know, that just as um, no more expansion to slavery was the watchword of your first term. Death to slavery will be the watchword of your second term. And in, in doing so, the United States is giving the signal to proletarians all over the world that the time for uprising against the slavery of capitalism has begun. So Marx had a lot to say uh, about slavery. Um, there's, you, know, you, you can fill a, a, a whole volume with the, the, his writings on slavery from across his career.
1: All right. And speaking of, of, of slavery and the Civil War, what was Marx's attitude regarding the role of slavery and the outbreak of the American Civil War?
0: Yeah, Marx, you know, contrary to a whole multiple generations of American historians who said the Civil War wasn't about slavery, it was about um, just this kind of, the, the breakdown of the party system, or it was in the in the title of one book, a blundering generation that uh, of politicians that took the country into war. Um, Marx said, no, the war is about slavery. It's fundamentally about the expansion of slavery. Um, and that's what's causing it. And that's why the abolition of slavery is necessary to end the war. Um, And so Marx was very, very clear that that slavery is the fundamental cause of the Civil War.
1: Right, right. So clearly Marx understood that slavery was a form of economic exploitation and was staunchly opposed to it. But did Marx also understand the racial component to American slavery?
0: Um, I, I would say he understood it about as well as a German who never set foot in the United States could understand it. Uh, uh, in the 1840s, as, as Marx and his uh, family are fleeing in the kind of failed aftermath of the revolutions of 1848 in Europe, he contemplated moving to Texas. A lot of Germans actually moved to Texas and Oklahoma, and uh, their descendants a generation later would be some of the key people building the Socialist Party in those states. But there's a fun alternate history to imagine if Marx had moved to Texas. But all right, back to your, your question. So yeah, Marx never set foot in the United States. He was a, a German from a, a Jewish family that had converted. Um, but Marx understood, to, yeah, to Christianity, exactly. Um, and uh, Marx understood that racism in the United States divided the workers' movement. And his line was, as long as labor is branded in a black skin, as long as it's enslaved, in other words, um, labor in a white skin cannot emancipate itself. Um, and he understood that the, the division between black and white, the racial hostility between black and white in the United States, was one of the keys to the, the power of the employer class in the United States, that it kept workers, both black and white, divided from one another. And that is an insight that the socialist movement would return to again and again and again later in their, um, their effort to combat racism.
1: All right and did the authors who are represented in your anthology were they aware of Marx's analysis of racism in America the authors are, are people who are um who are, are American people who are living in America and are you know writing about um about race were they aware of Marx's understanding of racism in America on the whole, no. I mean,
0: Marx's writings are scattered across lots and lots of texts. Um, a lot of his writings on the Civil War, for example, were actually published in the New York um, Tribune, which was the paper owned by the abolitionist Horace Greeley. And um, those those writings were not, like, collected and widely disseminated um, for the most part during this time. So, So for the most part, these people wouldn't have been terribly aware of the extent of Marx's writings on racism and slavery. Um, so in, in some ways, they are uh, kind of plowing new ground, unaware that it's, it's territory that Marx himself had already explored. Um, some of them, like, like W.E.B. Du Bois, for example, um, reads a lot of Marx's writings on the Civil War in the 1920s, um, and they inform his book, uh, Black Reconstruction. Um, you know, his, his real magnum opus. And so some of these writings uh, uh, ha- circulate and, and begin to be appreciated more. But for the most part, um, you know, it was much harder to get a whole, there wasn't Marxist.org, where you could look at literally any writing by Marx and read it, right? They, they didn't have that available to them. So they, they weren't as familiar with uh, the, the extent of Marx's writings.
1: Right. So who was the first known black socialist in America? And what was his attitude uh, toward the Republican Party and towards Mm -hmm. President Lincoln?
0: So the the first uh, known black socialist is a a man named Peter Clark. And Peter Clark had been an abolitionist, um, uh, an agitator against slavery. And in the, the, uh, I think, 1870s or 1880s, he ends up leaving the Republican Party because there are a number, the Republican Party in the in the 1870s and 1880s is kind of splitting into of different factions partially over the question of race, um, where there are the kind of the radical Republicans who are like, our job is to bring democracy to the South, to redistribute the land, to, to secure the vote for black Americans, and to crush the slaveholder class and make sure that they never rise again. Whereas others are like, Look, this is uh, this fight in the South is consuming all of our attention. We want to be running business in the North. And so we don't, we're, you know, we represent Northern businessmen. Northern businessmen are not terribly concerned about whether Blacks in the South can vote or not. And so we think the Republican Party would be a lot stronger if we just kept our noses out of the race question, kind of. Um, and this leads a number of black republicans to actually think about leaving the republican party and and uh, hall is one of these who wants to leave the republican party and he ends up joining the socialist labor party which was the the first kind of socialist party in the united states composed mainly of german immigrants um and uh, uh, never, never got to be nearly as big as the Socialist Party of the 20th century, but was a, had, had a few thousand members. And he becomes a very important speaker for, uh, for the Socialist Labor Party and is the first kind of prominent black socialist in the United States.
1: Right, and um, one of the other earliest Black socialists, known Black socialists in America, was George Washington Woodby. Who was he, and how did he see the relationship between slavery and capitalism?
0: So, George Washington Woodby was born into slavery um, in uh, Tennessee. Uh, as uh, he's born in the 1850s, um, so he is uh, freed from slavery during the Civil War, and he becomes a preacher. Um, And is like, you know, the vast majority of politically active uh, black Americans at this time is a uh, a Republican. However, um, in the 1890s, he becomes a populist um, as the Populist Party, which is a, a coalition of farmers in the United States that is fighting against their exploitation by uh, bankers and by kind of the big shipping companies that really press down, you know, in the same way that Amazon presses down prices for suppliers today, the big grain shipping companies and, and textile shipping companies press down the uh, the wages of poor farmers in, uh, you know, the 1890s. And so Woodby becomes a populist. Then he hears Debs speak, and though he is campaigning for uh the populist slash democrats because the populists formed an alliance with the democrats his talking points are so much like Debs's that uh the the politicians and the, the party kind of ask him to stop speaking um thereafter he joins the socialist party and moves to california where he, and and so california at this time it's important to remember was basically a series of towns that were run entirely by the railroad companies um, or other, or you know maybe some mining companies. Like California had no reputation whatsoever as a place of liberalism or anything like that. It was a place where these companies exercised complete control over the political life. And so Washington sets up shop there. And in the course of the the first decade of the twentieth century, leads a whole series of fights for free speech in these towns. Um, to give socialists and uh, trade unionists the right to advocate in public for what they believe in, because these towns passed all kinds of laws restricting that. So Woodby's a really important fighter. And he, as someone who knew slavery firsthand, always connected capitalism back to slavery and said that, you know, the Civil War destroyed uh, slavery. Now it is the job of socialism to destroy the slavery of capitalism, the wage slavery that comes with capitalism. And he made all kinds of other connections talking about how the police, which were, you know, he had a lot of firsthand experience with the police trying to club him off of a, a, a soapbox where he was speaking in California. And he was like, the police are the descendants of the slave catchers, right? The the, the slave catchers are, are gave rise to the modern policing system when slavery ended. Um, and he talked about, Uh, How abolitionists were uh, set upon by mobs, how their free speech was attacked, just like the socialists are attacked today. Um, So he he was constantly making connections. And that's something that I think um, Eugene Debs and a lot of the most compelling of this generation of American socialists did, was make connections back to the revolutionary legacy of abolitionism, but would be as someone who who was born into slavery, could do that with a, um, a passion and a um, concreteness that no one else could really match.
1: Right. And you mentioned that Woodby was a preacher. I'm curious, given that um, socialism um, um, today and also in, in, in previous eras is often thought as being anti-religious and antithetical to religion, uh, how did Woodby see the relationship between socialism and religion?
0: So, yeah, so, you know, socialism had that reputation at that time as well, and Woodby took that head on. And so um, one of his books, which is, you know, kind of essentially a long pamphlet um, called What to Do and How to Do It, is actually a dialogue between him and his mother over the question of socialism. And his mother, as a devout uh, black American Christian, is like, Why are you doing this thing that's opposed to Christianity? And Woodby says, it is precisely because I'm a Christian that I'm a socialist. And socialism is the social system that best fulfills the ideals of the Gospels. And he also, uh, you know, Woodby said, if socialists want to reach black Americans... They have to be able to talk about socialism and Christianity together because Christianity and the church were so central to the the political and social life of, of so many Black Americans. So even as he's saying to uh, to um, you know to his audience, look, Christianity and socialism are compatible. He's saying to the socialists, look, you gotta. This isn't France, right? Where like the Catholic Church is like one of the biggest enemies of socialism, right? Um, he's saying the situation is different here, and we need to kind of adjust. Our, uh, our our tactics and the way we talk accordingly.
1: Right. And um, was the issue of race debated much in the Socialist Party in America in the early decades of the 20th century?
0: Yeah, it was debated incredibly extensively. Philip Fodor, who was one of the great uh, students of American socialism and of Black history, uh, said that uh, second, it's only second to the debate over the farmer question, over what the kind of socialist position on, on uh, f- farming and, and small landowners is. So it was extensively debated in the pages of basically every major socialist publication. Um, and... It was debated uh, because there were a lot of different positions in the party. So some wings of the party were in favor of basically total accommodation to American racism and, and saying that, you know, in the South, socialist locals should be segregated, that um, socialism itself will be a segregated society. There were socialists who said that. The problem with capitalism is that it causes race mixing, right? So there were there were strains of socialism that embraced the most kind of lurid aspects of American racism. At the same time, there were socialists who uh, fought against all of that, including uh, Eugene Debs. So, um, I can, if I can I read a passage from uh, Debs, so um, this is a uh, passage from uh, Debs where he's uh, in one of his early essays where he is talking, and it's from, the, it's, it's from the same essay that says, we have nothing special to offer the Negro. So, so you know, think about that as, as you're listening to this. So Debs asks, what social distinction is there between a white and a black deckhand on a Mississippi steamboat? Is it visible even with the aid of a microscope? They are both slaves, work side by side, sometimes a bunch of black slaves under a white boss, and at other times a heard of black, white slaves under a black boss. Not infrequently you have to take a second look to tell them apart. But all are slaves and all are humans, and all are robbed by their superior white brother who attends church, is an alleged follower of Jesus Christ, and has a horror of social equality. To him, a slave is a slave for that. When the bargains for labor power, he is not generally concerned about the color of the package, but if he is, it is to give the black preference, because it can be bought at a lower price in the labor market, in which equality always prevails the equality of intellectual and social debasement. To paraphrase Wordsworth, a wage slave by the river's brim, a simple wage slave is to him, and he is nothing more. The man who seeks to arouse prejudice among working men is not their friend. He who advises the white wage worker to look down upon the black wage worker is the enemy of the both. The capitalist has some excuse for despising the slave. He lived out of his labor, out of his life, and cannot escape his sense of guilt, and so he looks with contempt upon his victim. You can forgive the man who robs you, but you can't forgive the man you rob. In his Haggard features, you read your indictment, and this makes his face so repulsive. You must keep it under your heels where you cannot see it." So, you know, Deb is a white man writing this about racism in 1903, right? Uh, he's saying, the, the reason there's racism is you cannot forgive the man you rob, right? Um, it's pretty radical stuff. Um, and so so there's people like Debs, and there's people who go even farther than Debs. There's a, um, a, a Jewish American socialist named I.M. Rubinow, who's actually the father of Social Security. Um, he was an economist. Who wrote the papers that essentially laid the ground? And he wrote these papers in the 1920s that laid the groundwork for the social security system and were taken up by the New Deal planners who made social security. But in the 19 teens, he's a Jewish American socialist economist and he was a correspondent of the great black American socialist W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, and he writes, um, basically a short book in the pages of International Socialist Review on the history of racism in the United States, the necessity of total equality for black Americans as a goal of the socialist movement. Um, so there, there were people who really took up the race question and, and, to, uh, and used it to forge a kind of more radical and revolutionary understanding of socialism as a whole.
1: Right. And speaking of some of the sort of positive... Um... Uh, out outcomes and 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 statements uh, related to to the race question in America. What was the resolution on the issue of black people that was adopted by the Socialist Party at its founding convention in Indianapolis in 1902?
0: Yeah, so the Socialist Party uh, adopts at its first convention uh, what's called the Negro Resolution that says that both political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, have betrayed black Americans, that capitalists seek to divide workers by racism. And it says, um, quote, we declare to the Negro worker the identity of his interests and and struggles with the interests and struggles of all workers of all lands without regard to race or color or sectional lines, and that the causes which have made him a victim of social and political inequality are the effects of the long exploitation of his labor power that all social and race prejudices spring from the ancient economic causes which still endure. And so they passed at their first, their founding convention, a special resolution inviting Black Americans to join the party. Which you know, for an organization founded of overwhelmingly white people to take this step in 1902 was was profoundly radical in the United States, where that was you know uh, uh, so incredibly segregated uh, at that time.
1: Right. And so the the party um, uh, adopts this resolution. How did the various state branches? of the Socialist Party approached the issue of race in the coming years.
0: So there was a lot of variation, particularly in the South. So some states, like Louisiana, um, basically just adopted segregation and had segregated locals. Um, but other state, other Southern states, even took a totally different path. So in Oklahoma, which actually had the most Socialist members uh, per capita as a state, um, the Socialists lead a really determined struggle against disenfranchisement, because these were the years in which all the southern states are rewriting their state constitutions to disenfranchise black voters, and often a very large number of white voters as well. And the Socialist Party in Oklahoma led the fight against the efforts to disenfranchise black Americans um, uh, in, the, in the 19-teens. So black newspapers in Oklahoma said there, there are no white people like the socialists in this state. Who are, who are fighting against disenfranchisement. And now ultimately they failed in that fight, but they, they did win several times, delaying disenfranchisement. They, they managed to defeat it several times before ultimately the disenfranchisers won and, and brought Oklahoma into line with uh, these other southern states. Um, so there's quite a bit of variation in different states about uh, in, in terms of how the states rea- the, the state socialist parties approached the race question.
1: Right. And it seems like the, the attitude towards the various um, uh, branches of the Socialist Party really seem to reflect the more general attitude towards race and black people in the various states in America.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, in, in states where racism was, was deeply entrenched, like, like Louisiana, the party was, was not successful in, uh, in, in forging a kind of different path.
1: Right. And could you describe the splintering of the Socialist Party that occurred in 1919 and the creation of the Communist Party at that time? And what impact this, these events had on the race question in America?
0: Yeah. So in 1919, the Socialist Party splits um, and essentially uh, tensions in the party have been building ever since the beginning of World War I. Um, because the, the kind of whole Socialist Party says we're against World War I. And then once the United States enters World War I, a number of Socialists start backing the war um, and say, well, we, we don't oppose the war anymore. Um, and these were Socialists from the left wing of the party and from the right wing of the party. And so there's this struggle between the left and right. The Russian Revolution only intensifies that as a number of Socialists say we should do what the Russians did. Now is the time to overthrow our government right? Um, and a number of other socialists say, no, 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 this is that's not the right time. We can't do that here. And uh, essentially what happens is the right wing of the party expels the left wing, which was a majority of the party. So the minority of the party, which has the party leadership, expels the majority of the party. And the left wing goes on to then found the American Communist Party, which immediately splits into two parties, Um one of which is mostly native born American communists and the other is mostly foreign born. Um, and they, they then merge in 1922 when the communist international says, okay, you guys need to knock it off and and be in one party. Um, and so initially the, um, the, uh, uh, race question is not a major issue in the split. It's not what's, what's driving it. And, the communist party initially doesn't really do that much better of a job with the race question than the socialists do. Um, like in, in 1919, uh, in in American history is known as red summer because there were a whole series of race riots across the country in which whites attacked black neighborhoods, burned down black homes, bombed black neighborhoods, you know, mobs attacked people really, really violent. And, um, if you read uh, one of the the newspapers of the early Communist Party, they say these race riots are a distraction. They're trying to get workers to forget about their um, their their struggles with the bosses. It's like. They, they talk about it the way people would talk about like the super, time, the super Bowl halftime show or something, you know, like as if it's not something with any, as if there aren't like profound issues of emancipation and oppression bound up with the race riots. Um, and so the, the early communist parties do very little to distinguish themselves. But um, one thing that causes, a, uh, there's, there's a couple things that cause a change. First, the communist party manages to recruit uh, a man named Cyril Briggs, who was the editor of a newspaper called The Crusader. And Briggs was a black immigrant from the Caribbean. Um, And his newspaper was this kind of black, radical, socialist, nationalist uh, paper that advocated armed self-defense against race riots and lynching, uh, advocated for blacks to become socialists and, and join the union movement. And when the Communist Party recruits him and some of his comrades, they start to work with the party more, and their, their influence starts to be felt in the party more broadly. The other thing that happens is the Communist International passes in 1922 its resolutions on the race question, which are themselves influenced by the Jamaican poet Claude McKay, who had joined the Communist Party um, and was, was close to Cyril Briggs and the Crusader. And um, this resolution makes really clear that... Um, that the, the, the proper communist position is to fight against racism, to fight against colonialism in Africa, to fight for self-determination, and that all of this is part of the struggle for, for communism. And that, combined with the influence of, of, of writers like McKay and, uh, and Briggs, um, leads a number of white socialists to really think a lot more seriously about the race question and so uh, a Texan uh, cartoonist actually named Robert Miner who is an important leader in the party writes a whole series of articles about the history of slave revolts in the United States and talking about the, the history of the black struggle against racism as uh, as something that exists on its own and that socialists have to figure out how to approach and how to win to, to a fight against uh, against ca- capitalism more broadly and so um, this, and this is part of the, the big argument of my book, is that it's actually in 1922, 1923, that the Communist Party really begins starting to take uh, 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 racism much, much more seriously and to really incorporate it into its, uh, its strategy in a, in a way that is even more profound than anything done by the Socialist Party.
1: Right. And earlier on, you mentioned the Black Belt Thesis. If you could just remind um, listeners what exactly that was and what were its strengths and limits um, as a framework for understanding uh, race in America?
0: So, yeah. So the Black Belt Thesis was a resolution adopted at the, the Third International, the Communist Internationals meeting in uh, 1928. And It's said that black Americans in the South in particular, and there's a whole belt of counties in the American South at this time that were majority black in population as a result of of slavery, obviously, right? These were some of the richest agricultural land in the South. And so it is where a lot of slave plantations were congregated and thus where a lot of uh, black Americans lived and and mostly worked as sharecroppers at this time. Sharecroppers are tenant farmers, um, you know, very, very poor agricultural workers. And the Communist International says in these counties there is a black nation that has the right, if it wants, to secede from the United States. And just like you know, they're arguing uh, at the time that, like you know, Poland has a right to be independent. Right? That that uh, various European countries, which had been oppressed by the Russian Empire or uh, by, by the Germans, whoever, that these con- these countries have a right to self-determination as well. So they kind of import this this uh, um, framework. That was really developed for thinking about oppressed nationalities in Europe and uh, uh, adapted it to the, the situation of black Americans in the South, which, um, to be honest, it didn't really fit, right? Like, it's not like uh, black Americans in the South uh, were fighting to secede from the United States, right? Like, that way, you know, there's a, there's a long history of Polish nationalism, right? Of, of, of fighting for uh, trying to be an independent country. That wasn't the ambition of black sharecroppers, by and large. Um, At the same time, by saying this, it did kind of say that, like, look, the black struggle against racism is its own dynamic. It's not like something that is just kind of subsidiary to the fight for communism, and it has to be taken seriously on its own terms. Um, and, And that was a strength. And it also, it influenced the party to send organizers into the South. And that became very important during the Depression in places like Alabama and North Carolina, where the party established very, very strong state parties, um, partially as a result of kind of the idea that, like, the party needs to be here in the Black Belt. Um, so on the one hand, it you know, I mean, it provided this way of talking about uh, uh, the struggle against racism that was probably not very helpful uh, for talking to Black share, right? Like, when communist organizers go and talk to Black sharecroppers about, seceding from the United States and self-determining, you know, like that, that's not where people were at. Um, but at the same time, the fact that it influenced people to go down there um, was ended up being a good thing. And, you know, so like Robin Kelly's book, Hammer and Ho, lays out like the history of the Communist Party in Alabama during the Depression, which is an incredibly brave struggle against the Ku Klux Klan, against the mining bosses, against the, the uh, landlords, um, the, 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 the big farmers, all of that. Um, so that, that became very, very important.
1: And you mentioned also um, in your book that there's a kind of afterlife, or there was a kind of afterlife, um, uh, a reemergence, uh, so to speak, of uh, some of the, the basic thought in this, um, the Black Belt thesis, um, later on, decades later on, down the road in American history. How did that work out? When was that? And how did that take cool. shape?
0: Well, I mean, you know, in the 1960s, you have kind of revolutionary black nationalism in the United States, um, where, where there are a number of groups that are saying, yeah, we do want to secede, we do want our own black nation. Um, and then you also have the new left, right? Um, and kind of, as the new left kind of rediscovers communism, a number of groups and, and people kind of coming out of the student movement embrace the, the black belt thesis again. And and call for it to be kind of uh, to you know again and you know in the 1970s it's probably even less uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, logical than it was in the 1920s but it but it comes up again so so yeah the the kind of ideas uh, that were that were pioneered in in, uh, early American communism uh, reappear in American history in periods in which you, you wouldn't necessarily expect it at all.
1: Right, right. Really fascinating. And you mentioned before Claude McKay. Uh, Who was he exactly and what was his relationship to the American Communist Party and to the Communist International? Yeah, so Claude McKay was a
0: Jamaican poet um, who came to the United States and became a really important writer in the Harlem Renaissance. He wrote a poem in 1919 responding to the race riots called If We Must Die. Um, that was said, you know, if we must die, let us die fighting back, um, basically. And he wrote a, a series of novels that were incredibly important for, uh, for black literary culture in the United States. Really, like, one of the, the most kind of accomplished black writers of the 20th century. And um, McKay became a communist, joined the Communist Party. Um, but the, the Communist Party, as I mentioned, had all kinds of kind of factional divisions and, and, and factional intrigue. And McKay kind of found himself on the wrong side of some of that when it came to uh, uh, going to the, the the Communist International. But the Comintern itself basically kind of reached over the Communist Party's head and said, this guy's really important. He has to come speak. And he gave a speech at the Communist International, which formed the foundation for the 1922 theses that I mentioned earlier. Um, and so, so his work really is the foundation for the Communist Party in the United States taking a much more serious approach to the question of racism.
1: Right. And um, you mentioned uh, in your book about the Negro Sanhedrin. What exactly was the Negro Sanhedrin and what was its attitude towards the Communist Party in America? Yeah. So the
0: Sanhedrin was a name for an ancient Hebrew council, and it was a um, gathering of some of the most prominent black leaders and organizations in the United States in the early 1920s. including people like the, the black nationalist leader, uh, Marcus Garvey from Jamaica, um, people from the NAACP, um, the National Association for the Advancement of, of Colored Persons, which was like the main civil rights group in the United States at the time. And it was a meeting that was kind of uh, in, in the aftermath of Red Summer and of, of some really significant fight for fights for equality by black Americans in the teens and early 20s. It was an attempt to kind of coordinate a bunch of that stuff. And the communists basically showed up and made a mess of things at the at the Sanhedrin and kind of showed up declaring that kind of everyone needs to embrace them everyone needs to rally to them without it was it was very uh uh poorly done uh, they were kind of they thought of it as an attempt to kind of introduce communism to these important kind of civil rights leaders and stuff, but they did it in such a ham-handed way that they actually alienated uh, a lot of people, which the Communist Party did again and again and again in the 1920s. Um, you can find that story kind of playing out again and again. So it was uh, a real kind of missed opportunity to demonstrate the seriousness of the party um, in, in the fight against racism.
1: Right. And uh, who was Lovett of Fort Whitman and why did he found the American Negro Labor Congress in 1925?
0: So Lovett Fort Whitman was a black American recruited one of the early recruits to the Communist Party who became one of its early leaders of work on the race question. And the American Negro Labor Council was an organization that he founded and that this is the, the ANLC was basically founded by the party in the wake of the 1922 uh, Comintern Theses to coordinate its work and to kind of be the organization that represented the party's work among black Americans. And so love a love for Leads the ANLC. He goes to Russia and, and gets kind of training in Russia alongside other anti-colonial leaders um, to, to kind of how to, how to organize, how to, all of that kind of stuff. He comes back from Russia and is really influenced there and goes around Chicago wearing, you know, a Russian fur hat and Russian thigh-high boots um, trying to recruit uh, black Chicagoans to the ANLC. Um, and Fort Whitman was a a really interesting thinker, really dedicated, um, but doesn't have a lot of success at this point in kind of, uh, winning lots of black Americans to the party. And, and people like Cyril Briggs, who had joined the party a little earlier than Fort Whitman, um, were kind of resentful of him. And we're like, okay, the party is like, the party's kind of having this guy lead their work because he doesn't know any better than to agree with them on everything. Um, whereas we have, we have some better ideas and, um, for women, unfortunately, and his life ends quite tragically, he eventually moves back to Russia. Um, and in the, the great purges of the 1930s under Joseph Stalin, he is accused of Trotskyism at one point of supporting the, the, the exiled, uh, a Bolshevik leader, Leon Trotsky. And that's a death sentence at that point, And he dies in the Gulag in, um, uh, I think 1938.
1: Wow. That's really, that's really very, very tragic. Um, um, a number of the selections in your book come from two uh, particular publications, The Messenger and The Crusader. What were these publications, and did they share the same philosophy regarding race? the race question? So,
0: yeah, The Messenger was founded by two black socialists, uh, Chandler Owen and A. Philip Randolph. And... Um, it is. Uh, it was kind of the official magazine of Black socialism in the 19 teens and early 1920s. And they were two very, very radical um, young uh, Black thinkers who wrote about labor organizing among Blacks, who wrote about armed self defense against lynching, who wrote a lot about the Russian Revolution and world revolutionary situations, and kind of how what what that meant for uh black Americans. And we you know, they, they were basically like, the Russians are rising up, the Germans are rising up, now is the time for us to rise up as well. Um that was kind of their position. Um the Crusader was founded by Cyril Briggs, who I mentioned, and the Crusader was a little more eclectic in its kind of mixture of Black nationalism and socialism. There was a strong back-to-Africa element of the Crusader, where they, they wanted Black Americans to go back to Africa, build a socialist homeland in Africa, and use that kind of as the basis for uh, for the Black American, or the, the, the Black contribution to socialism. Um, and whereas... Uh, uh Owen and Randolph stick with the Socialist Party for their whole career. I mean, Randolph was a member of the Socialist Party in the 1950s, 1960s. Um, Cyril Briggs and other people at the Crusader end up joining the Communist Party in 1921. Um, so they, they, they go in kind of different directions. There was a lot that they shared. I mean, both of them were kind of militant. Uh, uh, opponents of racial violence and then thought that, like, black Americans should shoot back when the lynchers came, you know, that that was kind of, that, that the time had come for armed self-defense. Both of them supported the union movement. Both of them supported the, the Bolsheviks and the Russian Revolution. But when the, the socialists and the communists split, the the messenger sticks with the socialists, whereas the crusader goes with the communists and provides the early communist party with its important early black membership.
1: Right, right, and I'm curious. I know this could be a, a difficult question, but given that your your book has so many wonderful um, um, uh, pieces from from various writers. Um, I'm curious if you have one or two favorites among. The the selections that you're willing to share with us. Sure. So so this is a
0: this is a piece from Wilfred Adolphus Domingo, who was a Jamaican immigrant, um, had worked with Marcus Garvey in Jamaica, actually, but became a socialist in the United States rather than a, a nationalist like Garvey. And this is from a piece he wrote in the uh, the Messenger. So he says. So far, although having greater need for its equalizing principles than white workingmen, Negroes have been slow to realize what has already dawned upon nearly every other oppressed people, that socialism is their only hope. The 384 million natives of India groaning under the exploitation of the handful of English manufacturers, merchants, and officials who profit out of their labor are turning from Lloyd George and the capitalistic liberal party to Robert Smilly, the socialist and independent labor party. The four million Irish who suffer national strangulation at the hands of British industrialists and militarists have turned to the socialists of England for relief besides becoming socialists themselves. The Egyptians, who are of Negro admixture, become convinced that their only hope for freedom from British exploitation is in international socialism, are uniting forces with British socialists and organized labor. In fact, Every oppressed group of the world today is turning from Clemenceau, Lloyd George, and Wilson to the citadel of socialism, Moscow. In this, they are all in advance of Western Negroes, with the exception of little groups in the United States and a relatively well-organized group in the island of Trinidad, British West Indies. Because of ignorant and unscrupulous leadership, Negroes are influenced to give their support to those institutions who oppress them. But if they would only do a little independent thinking without the aid of preacher, politician, or press we would quickly realize that the very men like Thomas Dixon, author of The Klansman, Senators Hoke Smith of Georgia, and Overman of North Carolina, who are fighting socialism, or as they maliciously call it, Bolshevism, are the same men who exhaust every unfair means to vilify, oppress, and oppose Negroes. If anything should commend socialism to Negroes, nothing can do so more eloquently than the attitude and opinions of its most influential opponents towards people who are not white. On the other hand, the foremost exponents of socialism in Europe and America are characterized by the broadness of their vision towards all oppressed humanity. It was the socialist Venderveld of Belgium who protested against the Congo atrocities practiced upon Negroes. It was the late Keir Hardy and Philip Snowden of England who condemned British rule in Egypt, and in the United States, it was socialist Eugene V. Debs who refused to speak in southern halls from which Negroes were excluded. Today, it is the revolutionary socialist Lenin who analyzed the infamous League of Nations and exposed its true character. It is he, as a leader of the Communist Congress at Moscow, who sent out the proclamation, slaves of the colonies in Africa and Asia, the hour of proletarian dictatorship in Europe will be the hour of your release. So, yeah, (laughs) you know, Domingo is really making the case to his, his his readership, which is overwhelmingly black, saying that, you need to ally with the socialists of the world. The socialists are the ones who oppose colonialism, who oppose racism. And meanwhile, the people who oppose socialism the most are also the ones who do the most to oppress black and non-white peoples more generally all over the world, right? He's making the case for that kind of identity of interest between socialists and, and people of color, particularly black people.
1: Right. And when, when was this published? Uh, this was 1919. Right, uh, and, 1919. right, and you mentioned that this was in the Messenger. Right, so this is a, a black socialist publication. I'm curious, do we have a, a sense of how wide uh, how widely um, um, read um, this publication was within the black community itself?
0: Yeah, so The Messenger was, was really widely read. It had a circulation that I think topped out at about 50,000. But um, people talked about how every uh, issue was passed around to at least five people who read it. Um, so it circulated very widely. And in fact, we know that uh, black uh, uh, dock workers in Philadelphia were reading The Messenger. We know that in um, in Texas in 1919, a group of black soldiers um, uh, rise up on an army base uh, and after, you know, a whole series of really uh, kind of horrific provocations by the white population of the town they were in, and when those soldiers are in the brig awaiting trial, they were reading the messenger. Um, so the evidence is, is pretty substantial that it was read quite widely by, by uh, black activists and, and black workers uh, in these
1: years. Right, and and I, I'm curious if we have a sense of uh, because the 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 author mentioned something about preachers, you know, that like not to you know rely on the black preachers uh, because they might be you know leading us astray. I'm curious if if we have a sense of you know how did the black community more generally at the time respond to these very you know impassioned and and thoughtful um 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 um, um addresses to the black community to, to, to embrace socialism. I mean, obviously, there must have been some kind of uh, conflict over uh, whether or not to to, to to listen to these types of um, uh, calls for socialism. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a few things there. So one thing that's important to
0: remember is that, you know, we associate the black church in the United States with the Civil Rights Movement. Martin Luther King was an important leader of the black church, right? Like, Fred Shuttlesworth, Ralph Abernathy, King's kind of lieutenants. Uh, There's there's a whole kind of the the role of the church in the civil rights movement basically can't be overstated, right? That wasn't the case in the early 20th century. In fact, the black church is quite institutionally weak um, for the simple reason that before World War I in particular, the black population is so overwhelmingly rural um, that, in a lot of the, like, urban South, the black church was actually dependent on white funding. Um, and so um, in the early 1900s, there's actually a movement against segregated streetcars all across the South. And um, it's, uh, the, the, the people who've studied this movement have found that this movement is by and large not actually supported by black preachers at the time. Black preachers opposed it. Precisely because their, their funding was dependent on white support. They, they couldn't, if they were the leaders of a movement, they would lose that support. Now that changes after the great migration of black Americans out of the southern countryside into the cities of the south and the north. So by the time like Martin Luther King is leading the black church, the, the, his church is, is financially independent from white people, and so black preachers are able to play a very different role politically. So that the kind of the the position towards black preachers that you're seeing in like Domingo at that time is reflecting something that really changed historically in their political role. Um, but the, you know in terms of how people responded, um, you know a lot of black leaders were like, look, the government hates socialists. What most white people hate. Black people, we don't need to another burden, right? So there are plenty of people saying, do not listen to them. That That's only going to mean more trouble. And then there were a lot of other people who said, what have we got to lose, right? Uh, a lot of other people said, here are some white people, finally, who are willing to stand up. Uh, for for um, black civil rights, for black equality. Um, they're saying that they, they support us. There's this government in Russia, one of the biggest countries in the world, that's saying it supports us. What have we got to lose from giving them a chance, right? And I think that was the attitude of a lot of people who joined the uh, the, the the socialist and the communist movement in these years at first was like, you know, these people are saying things that no other white person, I have, I've never heard any other white person say before. I'm going to give them a chance. I'm going to listen to them, right? Right. Um, So there was absolutely real debate and certainly Domingo and his comrades never succeeded in creating as mass an audience for socialism among black Americans as they would have liked. But um, they, they nevertheless had had some quite important successes and, and impressive um, accomplishments,
1: right? And I wonder if, uh, especially um, given that at at the time, at the early 20th century, um, as you mentioned earlier, many of the the people who were socialists in America were foreign born. Were Eastern Europeans, were Jews, um, Germans, others? Um, I wonder if when. Um, those same foreign-born socialists turn to the Black Americans and say, "Hey, come join us." If one of the obstacles for um, for Black socialists to really reach their uh, Black audience uh, is that they're they're accused of somehow being foreign, you know that that. You know, Black Americans are trying, as you said, for a long time to to integrate, to be accepted as "quote unquote" you know, real Americans, and then they're being uh, um, um, uh, um, uh, you know asked to join a, a movement that has so much foreign, uh, you know, such a, 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 a overwhelmingly foreign element in it. If that's somehow seen as un-American and kind of counterproductive to black Americans integrating into, uh, American mainstream American society. Yeah. I
0: think, I mean, I think that was definitely part of kind of what I mentioned before, people being like, we don't need more trouble than we already have. Like, you know, we're going to associate like the, the way for us to climb up the ladder of American society is not to associate with these people who are just one step above us, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that was that was definitely a thing. At the same time, I think for some early Black socialists like Lovett for White men, the kind of like global cosmopolitan nature of the socialist movement was something that was kind of intoxicating. Like you joined it, you know, within a year or two, you're being sent to Russia. You're, you're you know, in Russia, you're working alongside people from India, people from China, right? Like the like considering at the time that most Black Americans were uh, stuck on small farms in the south working on someone else's land that they you know never got to a big city let you know like to to be able to be kind of swept up in this movement and be part of something global i think um i I think it's important to just also think of that as a source of attraction for some people at least that like you know to, to join the socialist movement meant to see in some ways how big the world really was at a time when, like, there was a lot of coercion being used to keep the world of Black Americans as small as possible.
1: Right. Well, that's a really, really interesting point. Um, to before we conclude, I'm wondering what do you hope readers would take away from your anthology?
0: Well, um, you know, uh, I think I think it's always a good idea to try and write the book that you wish was there when you were like uh, an undergrad or whatever. So, on one level, I hope that like undergraduates who are writing papers about the history of American socialism can pull my book off the shelf and find a bunch of sources and write an interesting paper and learn something. You know. um, I hope it'll, it'll make their, their lives a lot easier for finding these sources and, and that kind of thing. Um, I also hope that it will um, more generally uh, provide a kind of richer sense of the, the history of American socialism and the struggle against racism, the connection between those, how complicated, dynamic, and productive that relationship has been. Um, and Because I think that's something that's important for, for socialists today to be thinking about as well.
1: Right, right. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thanks, Zalman. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.